0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.
2: Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, in St. Augustine. So, if you're ready for a little good
3: old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster
0: House presents
3: Monster Talk is an independent podcast production of Monster House, LLC. You can show your support by subscribing to our ad-free extended episodes at patreon.com forward slash monster talk. We want to grow our Monster Talk audience, and the easiest way to accomplish that is for listeners to leave us five-star reviews on iTunes. Positive reviews have a huge impact and only take a moment. Monster Talk's a proud member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, home of such shows as Clever, Food with Mark Bittman, and When Things Go Wrong. If you'd like to advertise on this show, contact sales at advertisecast.com. Here at Monster Talk, we love monsters. Yes, for the most part, I don't think monsters are real. Yes, I would not love to be hunted down and eaten by a monster if it were real, but the power of monsters to capture human imagination, to turn a story into a monster story, to turn a dark wood into a monstrous den of danger, or to turn a perfectly normal bed into the blanketed rectangular capstone of a shadowy kingdom of monsters just beneath... Well, that's some kind of power, isn't it? In the book Skin Shows... Jack Halberstam writes, Monsters are meaning machines. They can represent gender, race, nationality, class, and sexuality in one body. And even within these divisions of identity, the monster can still be broken down. Dracula, for example, can be read as an aristocrat, a symbol of the masses. He is predator and yet feminine. He's consumer and producer. He is parasite and host. He is homosexual and heterosexual. He's even a lesbian. Monsters in the gothic fiction that creates them are therefore technologies, narrative technologies that produce the perfect figure for negative identity. I agree with that. Monsters are a crayon that produces every color. They're the antagonists we can universally fear and yet often identify with. Their material reality isn't as important to us as their narrative potential. For every perceived encounter with a monster the seeds are sown for a thousand more harvests, at least in theory.
0: It's actually
3: quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stoltzner. Hey there, Monster Talkers. We're happy to have Professor Jeffrey Weinstock on today with us. Karen and I really enjoyed our conversation with him about his new volume, Monster Theory, and you can check the show notes for a link. He's written a lot about this stuff and lots of other things that you'll be interested in, and I suspect we'll be having him back to dive a bit deeper on some of those topics. But for this discussion, we're hopping all over the place like Spring Hill Jack. So let's not wait any longer. We hope you enjoy our Monster Talk. Okay, welcome to Monster Talk, Dr. Jeffrey Weinstock. I'm going to do a little intro for you. Jeffrey is a professor of English in the College of Liberal Arts and Social Science at Central Michigan University. He's won numerous awards, including some especially monster majestic ones, such as the Best 2014 Nonfiction Book Award from Room Org Magazine and the Golden Ghoul Award from the Cult of Ghoul Horror publication. That was for his book, The Ashgate Encyclopedia of Literary and Cinematic Monsters. And he's also written on vampires, Poe, Lovecraft, and lots of other topics that will be dear and familiar to our listeners. But it's because of his 2020 book, The Monster Theory Reader, that I wanted to track him down and talk to us today. In the past couple of years, I've been paying more attention to the way that monsters are being treated in the academic realm. And this book has a wide-ranging selection of essays, which include alumni from our show. Uh, In particular, Stephen Asma contributed an essay, and Aza Mittman uh, is quoted in the introduction. But uh, we'll talk more about that shortly. So welcome to Monster Talk, Jeffrey Weinstock. Oh, thank you very much. I'm pleased to be here. Great. Hi, Jeffrey. <laughs> so we often start out by asking, you know, how people got interested in their topics. But I think before we do that, I want to ask, what is monster theory?
2: I would say that monster theory is the attempt to kind of think through what monsters are, where they come from, and how they become meaningful to people in, in different contexts and different places.
0: Okay. And so how did you come to be involved with the creation and the advancement of this topic?
2: Well, I've been involved with monsters in various forms, I think, for um. <laughs> uh, most of my life, and certainly for most of my academic career. So I took something that was near and dear to my heart as I was growing up and made it a focus of academic scrutiny. So I've kind of gone through an evolution where my graduate work dealt with ghosts. And then I wrote a book about vampires. And then I put together an encyclopedia about monsters. And then I was invited by the University of Minnesota Press, who's the publisher for the Monster Theory Collection. Um, I got in, invited to assemble the collection. Really nice. nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, it was nice. <laughs> yeah. So it was, in some ways, a little bit daunting, to try and figure out what to include and how to organize the collection. But it was also um, gratifying to to have been invited to
3: do so. So yeah. Mm-hmm. So I got involved because someone said, "Hey, would would you do this thing?" Well, we had talked to Stephen Asma about. <laughs> a decade ago. And I recently caught up with him again. And we talked a little bit about uh, his contribution to this book and the sort of growing field of monstrous academia. And and I'm curious about it because it seems like there's a lot of research being done in this field. And also people are using it in their coursework and teaching. So I guess I'm curious about how do you use monsters in your day-to-day teaching as well as it from research perspective?
2: From a teaching perspective, I'm in an enviable position because I had the opportunity to design a class called Monsters and Their Meanings. So it was, it, it's been my baby. And I've gone through a variety of different permutations with the class, and I've settled on a particular format where what we do is I have clusters where we start with a, a canonical text, something like Bram Stoker's Dracula or Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. We then do an updated version of the same text and then maybe one or two movie versions. So we had a a vampire cluster where we did Bram Stoker's Dracula. We did a a very up-to-date with a vengeance version from Octavia Butler called Fledgling. We watched Nosferatu, I think was the film most recently that we did. And the idea behind the course is that our monsters tell us a lot about ourselves and that the same monster can reflect very different anxieties and desires depending upon the context in in which it's being used. So Bram Stoker's uh, vampire from the end of the 19th century is a very different vampire from the vampires that we find at the start of the 21st century. So it's a kind of comparative approach, and we look at the same monster from different perspectives. We did a unit on Frankenstein, um, which was fun. We just finished one on Jekyll and Hyde. And we're heading into Uh something on H.P. Lovecraft, where we're going to read some Lovecraft stories. And then we're going to read Matt Ruff's Lovecraft Country and maybe watch one or two episodes from the HBO series Lovecraft Country. Um, So uh, as far as my teaching goes, it's very central. Um, And I'm pleased to have the opportunity, actually, to teach something that's so near and dear to my heart. It's also a central focus of the research that I do. Neat. Uh So I've... mm, this is a relatively recent development um, but the press bloomsbury i think it's bloomsbury i got (laughs) a double they have a series called their cultural history series and what these are are six volumes from different time periods that all address the same subject and i will be doing the cultural history of monsters series for them so it's six volumes starting with antiquity, making its way up to the present, Um, I will be editing one of the volumes myself, and I have five other editors that I'll be working with who'll be working with different periods. Yeah, it's going to be kind of a a massive undertaking. Um, It's a little daunting, but it's also, I'm looking forward to it. Well, that is interesting.
3: Yeah. I'm imagining the the big differences in in monster literature from medieval times when it was a warning of what to expect (laughs) 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 versus... (laughs) But maybe a known fiction. <laughs> um,
0: but uh, Jeffrey, I- I'm curious, over the past couple of years, Blake and I have really expanded our definition of monsters and what is a monster. And so we've been looking at human monsters as well. We've done shows on uh, characters like Hitler and Rasputin. And I'm wondering if you touch upon any real life monsters like that in your course or in your books.
2: Well, the closest that I probably come to. A real-life monster would be the idea... Well, there's two directions to take it. First would be the serial killer.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, something like Dexter or Hannibal. Right. O- often find their way in. And and, and both of those, to me, are, are really sort of fascinating popular culture texts to focus on. Dexter in particular, um, which I'm pleased to see they're going to have a new season of Dexter that's coming out. The idea that somehow we as viewers are positioned to be rooting for a serial killer... It is one of the most outrageous concepts that you can possibly imagine, right? And it's the incredible manipulation of the program that puts us on the side of Dexter. And the premise of Dexter, I don't know if everybody is familiar with Dexter, but that he is a serial killer who has been able to channel his murderous desires into focusing on other serial killers or really bad people. Um, and what we see is that he's essentially doing the work of law enforcement that the law can't do. So he he has the ability to track down and to punish these really, really awful people. Um, so he's able to give vent to his desires on the one hand, but the other hand, um, he's taking out these just, you know, completely uh, just awful, awful characters. Um, so we're positioned by the show then to be rooting for him to accomplish his goal and get away with it. Um, <laughs> and, and then there's all the seductions of Hannibal. Um, which is just this g- aesthetically gorgeous program built around Hannibal Lecter. Uh, okay. It's essentially kind of a, a perverse cooking program. <laughs> uh, because the, the best, <laughs> I mean, it really does seem to be modeled after something like chopped, but taking it very, very <laughs> seriously. Yeah. And it's just so the serial killer, on the one hand, is a modern monster that finds its way into the Discussions that we have in class. Um, And the other to me is is the idea of the terrorist. The modern monster that is so intimidating to us because we can't visually identify the terrorist. Um, Anybody could be the terrorist, which is why we have so much security at airports and large events and sporting events. You know, it it could be anyone. And that to me seems to really be the hallmark of modern monstrosity. Um, You can't tell a monster when you see one. You know, they can blend in with the rank and file of humanity. You know, you used to know a monster because they were scary looking and you knew to run away, but all of that's been turned on its head in twenty first century culture. We don't demonize people because of the way they look, but the way they act. And the problem with the terrorists is we don't know who's going to be the one to act in a murderous way until they act or until we Mm -hmm.
3: get whiff of whatever the plan is. Well, that's interesting. So they're they're like an invisible monster up until the point they're identified, and then they're. Some jerk,
2: <laughs> right? Which, which is which is why we have you know all the Jack Bowers of the world on action adventure programs who have the ability to ferret out who among us is really the monster.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good angle, I think, for that topic.
3: Oh yeah, I, I I didn't want to miss this window. I might move this around if you like it. But on Dexter, you've got your, you inevitably we'll have people who will say, I liked the old Dexter. And there'll be people who say, I like the new Dexter, you know, and they'll split into camps. But, you know, the true fan will be ambidextrous. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, okay. All right. Nice <laughs> uh, polite laughter there. <laughs> so, so no, no,
2: I, I, I appreciate the good dad joke category. Yeah. So I'm... <laughs> totally down with
3: it. <laughs> I was a dad. Yeah, he... I was a dad when I was 12.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, so I didn't warn you about the puns. But...
3: Sorry. But I do have a serious question. So, first of all, let me make a confession. This is one of the rare times I didn't get to finish the whole book before we do the interview. And I'm I'm really regretful because wow, this thing has some great material in it. So, I want to help you, you know, move some paper as they say, but <laughs> How is academic consideration of monsters different from the way that your average monster fan would consume this material in fiction and movies and whatnot? I think it's only different by degree. But Like you have to have one? But-
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> You're trying to get one?
2: <laughs> no, because I, I don't know necessarily that you have to be you know, invested in academia to have conversations about where monsters come from and what they mean and what they reflect. Ooh, I like this uh, and- answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I because I think you know anybody who's coming out of Candyman, you know the most recent version of Candyman, can have a conversation about how it's a reflection of racism. You don't need to have a, a advanced degree to look at the monsters and see the ways that they're reflections of particular sets of concerns and anxieties and to a certain extent reflecting desires that people have. I would say the difference between the academic approach is one of degree. It's that it's just we're going to go a little bit deeper into a consideration of, okay, um, so where did this thing come from? What makes it tick? Why are people attracted to it you know, monsters are scary and monsters are gross. So, you know, what, why do people gravitate around them? Um, what does it mean? Um, and in some cases, it may have also to do with a kind of specialized language for talking about monsters. You know, we're going to yeah. approach it from a psychoanalytic perspective mm-hmm. or we're going to do a Marxist approach to it, which just means, you know, um, if you're taking a Marxist approach, then you're saying, okay, how does it deal with, with concerns about class? Um, in class mobility or the inability of people to sort of better their positions, or if it's a psychoanalytic approach to it, it's just sort of like, uh, you know, how did early childhood trauma warp somebody into becoming a monster? So, um, you know, I don't, I don't see the things as being a really vast divide because I, I think people who like monsters are really keen on talking about monsters and what they mean.
3: Well, I certainly feel it, that way. You, you give me a perfect segue for a follow up though, which is. What kind of perspectives are covered in the Monster Theory Reader? All right. So the book is
2: divided up into several different sections. The first section is a kind of toolbox section, which looks at various different theoretical approaches that have been used for monsters. Um, For example, one of the terms that's often employed when talking about monsters is the idea of the uncanny, which is most associated or most immediately associated with the psychoanalyst Sigmund Freud,
3: who, who in a famous
2: mm-hmm. essay called Uncanny, talks about the uncanny as a kind of upending of the world that happens momentarily when expectations do not meet with what you anticipate. And he talks about all different kinds of experience that fall under this rubric of the uncanny. Um, one of my favorite examples from the the essay on the uncanny is Freud recounts an experience of having been in some small Italian village and he goes for a walk and he finds himself back at a starting point. So he heads off in the other direction and the same thing happens again. Um, and it creates this impression that somehow some external force is directing his movements and he's not really in control of where he's going. And that for him is an example of the uncanny. Uh, another example, he gives this deja vu. You know, that, that weird experience that you've been here before. Uh, another example, he gives this deja vu. You know, that, that weird experience that you've been here before.
3: Quick note to myself, it would be really funny to make you repeat that.
0: You can do that in post. No, what you're supposed
3: to say is, is, I knew you were going to say
2: that. Yeah, Um, yeah. 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 Um, So anyway, uh, so we have Sigmund Freud's essay on the uncanny included as part of this toolbox section. And actually what what precedes that is a very important essay by a fellow named Jeffrey Jerome Cohen called Monster Culture, Seven Theses. And this is a piece from the mid-1990s in which Cohen advances seven claims about monsters. And it's been very a foundational work for monster theory. He says that monsters function in a variety of different ways. He starts off that monsters are essentially a kind of congealment of culture, that they give uh, a form to a specific time and place and feeling And then he says that monsters are defined. Here's another one of his theses. He calls them harbingers of category crisis, that what monsters are are things that are difficult to categorize. Mm -hmm. And and that we as human beings, we like to be able to identify things and put them into a category. And it makes us anxious when we can't figure out what something is or where it goes. I I want to give an amen to that. (laughs) That's what monsters do. They're often, you know, the idea of the undead.
3: It's not living. It's not dead. It's somewhere in between is a good example of, Category crisis. Can I just add? This is not an existential topic because it has literal bearing on where the hell I'm supposed to file these books I have on these topics. So I can't, (laughs) I can't forget where to put stuff. (laughs) Yeah.
2: Um, So, so we have
3: Cohen's piece in there.
2: Um, So there's an initial section on that. Then we talk about the way in which different forms of what we could call otherness, so cultural otherness, religious otherness, sexual otherness, has been exaggerated into monstrosity. Um, so racial monsters or religious monsters um, or sexual monsters. And then there's a more general section just uh, about sort of monsters and religion and monsters and different different aspects of culture. And then the final section, which is the shortest, is, is about future monsters and, and hopeful monsters and different ways to think about monsters in which monsters maybe aren't so much scary possibilities for rethinking our relationships to one another into the natural world.
0: Hopeful monster.
2: I'm curious about that. Monsters are these are typically antagonists. They're things that we attempt to contend with and to survive. Um, but what if we were somehow able to rethink monstrosity and find something of value in it or, or to, recognize that the things that we call monsters are really reflections of our own fears and anxieties. There's a possibility of moving beyond
3: monstrosity into something else, I think. I think if you're really lonely, a succubus starts to seem like a friend. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or, you
3: know, multiple identities you
2: can get together for a tea party. There's that, there's that. <laughs>
0: There are so many great uh, chapters. I mean, some of the titles just are really exciting as well. And uh, I see that you've got a chapter in here, your contributions, uh, Chapter 18, Invisible Monsters, Vision, Horror, and Contemporary Culture. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: It, that actually reflects a little bit of what I was saying before. The premise of that piece is that there has been a shift in our understanding of monstrosity in which we our, our anxiety in the 21st century, is that we don't know monsters anymore when we see them. Um, so that rather than looking at, you know, the Frankenstein's monster that comes shambling towards us, or you know, the, the threatening werewolf, our anxiety today is that is that you know anybody could potentially be a monster. And I talk about the way that that shows up in a variety of, of different respects. One of them being just. The idea of viruses and contagion, which at the point that I was writing that, was a little more distant to us than it was today. But nevertheless, there, you know, we went through a whole sequence of films that had to do with viral outbreaks in which anybody could possibly be infected, which led to a kind of sometimes a zombie apocalypse, sometimes not. Uh, but that, that's one manifestation of that. The terrorist is another manifestation of that. Yeah. It's just that our, our monsters now are invisible. And our concern is that we can't figure out who is the monster. Yeah. There's a kind of security in being able to identify who the monster actually is. And our anxiety is that could be anyone.
3: Yeah, no, no, for sure. That, And again, that's another one of those monster things that you kind of wish was existential instead of being sometimes literal. It's everywhere, you know, yeah. stranger danger. Uh-huh, yeah. Uh, it, it's, it's strange times, strange times. But uh, uh, you mentioned Jerome Cohen. Now, was am I remember right? Was he your doctoral advisor? <laughs> yeah, Jeffrey Cohen was my my dissertation advisor. Okay, dissertation. So, but and he wrote a book in, in ninety six called Monster Theory: Reading Culture. Is right? Is, is this book similar, or is it kind of a ex, uh, an extension of that work back then? Or how do you see those works related?
2: Okay. So his book, the Monster Culture one, is an edited collection of scholarly essays. So he was the editor for it, and he assembled a variety of other contributors to the collection. His contribution to it was the essay that's included in my Monster Theory collection, which is Monster Culture, Seven Theses. And I see his book, I think it's 96 or 97, as being really uh, the, the foundational moment for something called Monster Theory, where there was this constellation of different scholars in different areas who were all focusing on monstrosity. And it kind of coalesced into something you could actually put a name to different people who were thinking about, okay, so lots of monsters going on in pop culture, contemporary culture. Where do they come from? What do they mean? How do they work together? What does that tell us about ourselves? And I think more than anything, that's the question that monster theory seeks to ask is like, how do our monsters reflect us? What do they tell us about ourselves?
3: It's fantastic.
0: So, Jeffrey, you mentioned earlier that uh, you had an interest in ghosts when you were at university. Uh, what in particular did you research, and what are your interests in that regard?
2: My interest in ghosts goes way back, and there are several. Also, <laughs> yeah, there's several. Like, and that was my the first thing that really captivated me as far as monsters, and and there were several. I have several early memories that are all intertwined. One was the haunted mansion
3: at Disney, oh.
2: which, which sort of obsessed me. Like I, it was the ride I wanted to go on repeatedly.
3: Mm. And yeah, it, it, it's not just beautiful and gothic and weird; it's also really well air conditioned.
2: <laughs> That's true. It does get to point. for my point. Yeah, Orlando heat. <laughs> I remember vividly there was a like made-for-TV movie by Disney called Child of Glass. This is an obscure one. Ooh, but it is. I've never heard of this at all. I'm writing it okay. down. I don't think it's it's going to be anything that's going to knock anyone's socks off today, but when you were watching it at age eight, it was kind of mesmerizing because it involved a, the ghost of a little Creole girl who was haunting a little boy whose assistance she needed to recover a lost object in order to avoid kind of being condemned forever. Um and I remember being sort of glued to the screen by this Disney movie and the other the third touchstone is I stumbled in elementary school on a collection of ghost stories called Alfred Hitchcock's Haunted Houseful
0: mm-hmm.
2: which I just read I checked it out like repeatedly and it really kind of shaped my interests I think that this combination of events so so I was always interested in ghosts and ghost stories and it became a kind of natural bridge then to academia for me, where I began to look at the ghostly elements that were present in a variety of different literary works for, for my doctoral dissertation. I was, and actually, the my dissertation, which was a, a kind of intensely academic enterprise with a lot of theory in it, but I I was looking at the idea of the dead letter um, which is the idea of a a letter from the living that goes astray can't be delivered to its intended recipient can't be returned to sender Mm -hmm. uh, and the idea of a letter from the dead that arrives so I was looking at kind of ghosts in language um, and letters and so I began with Edgar Allan Poe and I ended up with Toni Morrison with her book Beloved uh, which is a ghost story and and bizarrely in the press today for certain school districts that don't want Tony Morrison in their schools. And I think if you're on the other side of Tony Morrison, you're on the wrong side of everything. <laughs> um, anyway, but so yeah, yeah a, you know a natural inclination towards ghost stories became the focus of academic exploration for me in graduate school. Um, and I just used that as a springboard and have kept going.
1: That's our
3: whole show. So join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms, and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinWagPod and WagOn.
0: Fantastic.
3: If if you'll forgive me for possibly putting you on the spot, we've covered the uh, the Gothic uh, before lightly, but primarily in terms of architecture, talking about the ways that universities took on a pseudo Gothic architecture in the nineteen tens twenties to sort of give that air of antiquity to the uh, to their campuses. But there's also the sense of Gothic in English literature. And even though I was an English major, I don't think I've ever bothered to try to explain what it is exactly. Is that something you feel comfortable trying to explain to the audience? Like, what, what is the Gothic within terms of literature?
2: Sure. Um, <laughs> I don't want to get too pedantic.
3: You, you but can go a, in the weeds. It's my show. I okay, do what we yeah, want. Just, <laughs>
2: <laughs> Fair enough.
1: Um,
2: all right. So the Gothic, in terms of literature, is a literary movement that begins in the middle part of the 18th century with a book by a guy named Horace Walpole called The Castle of Otranto. Um, and what he does is he presents this kind of outrageous story to the world of a haunted castle and Curse and uh, debased aristocracy, and he he says this is a recovered medieval manuscript, and I'm I'm going to give this to all of you to enjoy, and it does very well. And then he steps forward in a second edition, and he says, "Aha! I, Horace Walpole, I'm actually the author of this story, The Castle of Otranto," um, and it set off a kind of literary craze. And what you see is a development in the 18th century into the 19th century with two different directions where the, where Gothic literature goes. And what Gothic literature originally did was to evidence um, an interest in the past in, in medieval ruins, in ancestral curses, in haunted castles. Gothic actually goes back to the Goths, these Northern European tribes that invaded Europe in the 4th, the 5th, and the 6th centuries. And during the Renaissance, the style of architecture that was associated with the Goths, this heavy ponderous architecture, so cathedrals and castles was in low esteem. So Gothic and goth acquired a negative connotation to it. So Gothic literature is heavy and ponderous. It has an interest in the past. It deals with ancestral curses, um, ghosts, uh, all things haunted. And you begin to see Uh, towards the end of the 18th century, the early part of the 19th century, you have authors like Anne Radcliffe on the one hand and Matthew Lewis on the other who were developing these Sensationalist novels that include all kinds of outrageous behavior that range from incest to murder to usur- usurpation of someone's place in the aristocratic pecking order. You typically have a, a heroine who is being held captive by some kind of smarmy aristocrat who's seeking to seduce her for purposes of, of defrauding her out of her inheritance. It, coalesces into a distinct literary genre in the early part of the 19th century. And then you have this great shift that happens from the 18th century into the 19th century where the haunted castles transform into haunted psyches. So the ghosts become internalized. So that's what Edgar Allan Poe really contributes is that rather than giving you uh, haunted castles, it's haunted people who are moved by impulses and desires that they're not fully aware of and can't fully control. <laughs> so w- when,
3: do the, when do the Bauhaus and the closed cigarettes show up?
2: That comes a little <laughs> bit
3: later. <laughs> um, but, but there's a direct line
2: in many respects from you know, goth music of the late 1970s and the 1980s to gothic literature, because they're drawing inspiration mm. and imagery um, from gothic literature. So if you look at some of the Bauhaus covers where they have sort of bat-like imagery, or even Bella Lugosi's Dead, which is the, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the most famous, I think, of the goth tracks from 1979, it's all about vampires and children of the night. Indeed.
0: Mm-hmm. So, Jeffrey, I wonder if you can tell us a bit more about your work with vampires, too.
2: <laughs> I started with ghosts, and then I kind of migrated towards vampires because I was um, given the opportunity to contribute to a book series for Wallflower Press, which has a whole series that deals with different genres and subgenres of film. And I was invited to do one on vampire cinema. Um, so I, I spent a whole summer and then some like sort of just watching vampire movies.
0: <laughs> nice.
2: <laughs> so on, on
3: reflection, what do you think?
2: but <laughs> <laughs> on reflection, there wasn't much there. <laughs> um, and it, like, uh, I think I've mentioned this in the book, like invariably, like my wife would peek in at the moment that there would be some topless woman like running through the screen. And she'd be saying, what vampire porn are you watching today? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but because vampires are the sexiest of the monsters, right? You know, they're the most close with perhaps the idea of the succubus you
3: know mm, mm. i remember her now. from a few minutes back <laughs> yeah right right,
2: right. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, but, but vampires are all about sex They're they are yeah
3: yeah mm. i wasn't going to call you out and i was just going to let go so but you're good no, no, no.
2: it's all about the intimate encounter and the nibble on the neck and the exchange of bodily fluids
3: who someone famously called uh vampires um, i have to beep this but the zipless f- a quick insert here i did remember correctly about stephen king referring to this I dug up the quote and found that it was actually him making a joke about the especially apt use of what was a relatively new concept. He was quoting author Erica Jong. This was all above my head back when I read this book in the early 1980s. Jong had written a novel called Fear of Flying, and in that book she used the term zipless f**k to refer to a kind of extremely casual sexual encounter where two people just get to business without consequences or consideration. The book is considered to be an important marker to second wave feminism. And I am grossly unqualified to talk much more about it than to say, check out the Wikipedia article, which I will link to in the show notes. But here's what King had to say within Dance Macabre. The sexual basis of Dracula is an infantile oralism coupled with a strong interest in necrophilia and pedophilia, some would say, considering Lucy in her role as the bloofer lady. It is also sex without responsibility, and in the unique and amusing term coined by Erica Jong, the sex in Dracula can be seen as the ultimate zipless fuck. So, King is using a term for casual sex of the most extreme variety to refer to an even more genital free approach to sexuality, the inverted sexual mystery that is vampirism. King has more to say on this, but I'll just refer you to his excellent book, Dance Macabre. (laughs) (laughs) I think I remember reading that in uh, Stephen King's uh, Dance Macabre.
2: Yeah, that makes sense. You know, it kind of displaced Mm -hmm. uh, intercourse. But, like, the, the The whole sexual element is there right from the start um and in Stoker, it's all completely crazy, like for those who have read Bram Stoker's Dracula, it is a wild sexual ride it It starts with Jonathan Harker being trapped in Castle Dracula and he becomes a damsel in distress um There's this complete inversion of gender roles because he he's Trapped in the castle, Dracula needs him to facilitate this transfer of property. Jonathan is laying there as Dracula's three brides converge upon him, and he feels the wicked desire that they'll kiss him with those red lips. Dracula interrupts the whole sexy scene and then says, this man is mine. Um, (laughs) I mean, that's literally what you said. This man is mine, and he throws his brides off. Um, So, you know, you've got Jonathan who's trapped in the castle he manages to rescue himself. He doesn't have anybody ride in and and rescue him. But, um, and then the weirdest scene in the whole thing is that our heroes, um, Quincy and Arthur and Jonathan and Seward have, have gone to Carfax Abbey because that's where they think Dracula is. And they're going to, sterilize his coffins of earth it's a stakeout Mm -hmm. yeah pretty much and they leave (laughs) they leave Mina unattended in seaward sanitarium and Dracula Mm -hmm. shows up right because they won't let her come along she wants to go along they say no we're going to leave you here for your own safety by yourself and of course Dracula shows up he slits his breast with his nail and he forces Mina to suckle from him and drink his blood it's this weird breastfeeding scene mm-hmm. uh, which is what starts to transform her into a vampire it's
3: basically graves of wrath with vampires <laughs> <laughs>
1: i'm
3: not so
2: sure about that one <laughs> of course then you've got lucy
3: who dies who comes back and preys upon little children the blucher woman is that something like that i, I love that yeah she- Okay, Dracula fans, stop screaming at your podcast player. It's Bloofer Lady. I'm obviously having some kind of young Frankenstein Dracula crossover here. When Lucy gets turned into a vampire, stories from street children about a mysterious Bloofer Lady abound. Scholars seem to mostly agree that this was likely Stoker trying to use kid talk for beautiful lady. And there's no evidence at all that Stoker was influenced by Gene Wilder's young Frankenstein script when he chose that name. I'll tell you though, in a strange coincidence, when I went back to do the insert about the zipless fuck earlier in this episode, and found the King entry in Dance Macabre, I was surprised to see that both Lucy and the Bloofer Lady were right there in that quote. Since I read that book in the early 1980s, I'm surprised that stuck. Maybe it was because the F word was being used in what's mostly a scholarly work, or maybe it was because I was a 14-year-old boy and everything sexy was extremely memorable at the time. I don't know but it is really blue for lady i was trying to think of and not blooker
2: she's like so anyway like dracula is is this whole sexual mess mm-hmm. and it just has been carried on in the whole vampire cinema which has great fun i think with with playing with the sexual titillation and the desire part of the monster the, the whole thing about monsters is that they don't re- just reflect anxieties and fears. They also reflect desires and vampires being the sexiest of monsters, really. I think uh, that idea of the multiple sexual partners and being able to sort of be with whoever
3: you want is, is embedded with the vampire. So you, you've got several books out. I'm actually curious about the Giving the Devil His Due because um, I've got a pretty good collection of uh, witch movies that have been accruing, but I don't have that many devil movies, except maybe like The Devil's Rain, and uh, eh, maybe a couple more, but th- not a lot. A quick insert here. Apparently my brain froze during the interview because I have a lot of devil movies in my collection. I only remember this one uh, with William Shatner and Ernest Borgnine. My brain is weird. Anyway... Uh, Of course you should also remember The Devil's Advocate, Rosemary's Baby The Ninth Gate, The Devil Rides Out Mr. Frost, Haxon The Blood on Satan's Claw, Satan's School for Girls, The Devil and Max Devlin Angel Heart, I could go on and I'm not even including the ones that are like super devil adjacent, such as The Omen, all the exorcism movies where the demons claim to be the boss guy, or the ones where there's devil cultists, but you don't really get to see the devil, or movies like Legend, where we're pretty clearly seeing the devil, but they just call him darkness. Yeah, you know, as I say, my brain froze. Okay, back to the show. So what, what, what sort of things can I find out about in Giving the Devil His Due?
2: OK, what we did with Giving the Devil His Due, Satan in Cinema, which just came out this year, it's a assemblage of scholarly essays that focus on films that feature the devil. And so we start with uh, Georges Millet and early experiments with film because the devil comes, like, as soon as there's film, there's the devil in yeah, the film. Yeah, it
3: was like in Haxon, I think, I remember. Uh, even earlier. Oh, yeah, like wow
2: from the 1890s and the 19 aughts um, in which film is still being figured out Like, wow. like you know what is film it, it's a great opportunity to try out special effects and that's what a lot of the really early filmmakers and experimenters did is to use the devil as an opportunity to sort of work out like how can we stop the film like what's called the stop trick or a stopgap effect. We, we can have a picture of somebody, we can stop the film, we can substitute something else in its place, and it, it looks like something has magically transformed into something else. Um, so a lot of the pioneers of film were using supernatural themes because it was a great opportunity to try out cinematic tricks and effects. So what we did with the collection is rather than just having... what What often happens with edited collections of scholarly collections like this is it begins with a call for papers um, you say hey we're putting together this collection who would like to contribute send us your ideas and what mm-hmm. you often get is the, a kind of random assortment of different proposals and i co-edited the, the collection with a woman named regina hansen at boston university and we wanted something that would be a little more coherent so we, mm-hmm. we tried to come up with a list at the start uh, these are some of the films that we think really merit attention. Like, we need to have somebody who talks about Rosemary's Baby. Um, we need to have somebody who talks about The Omen. We need to have something in there that deals with The Devil's Advocate. So we we put together a, a list of films, and then and then we kind of found people who were well-positioned to write the essays themselves. That's a great approach. I love it. Well, I mean— the the whole thing I have to admit was really an excuse because I wanted to use the title, the devils in the details so that I, could... <laughs> I can totally so sympathize I, with that yeah, kind of logic. Enough. So yeah, that I could write yeah. about Roman Polanski's the ninth gate. Like, yeah.
3: That's <laughs> a, a favorite yeah. film. Yeah. So,
2: so I, I had to find a, a book that I could actually put the essay into.
3: Yeah. It's like one of those I, Roman Polanski is like, I, I, you know, I, I Really don't like him as a person, but man, he made good movies. So
2: <laughs> that That's a whole different kettle of fish, isn't it? It is, it yeah. is. Yeah. And that, it's not not just Spolansky, So
3: No, no, uh, mm-hmm. uh, if only, right? Okay, but... Right.
0: I also wanted to ask about another book that you have. Uh, I mean, it seems like you've released quite a few books within a short space of time, but Blake and I are big Python fans, and mm-hmm. I see you've got a book... And now for something completely different. ...critical approaches to Monty Python. Uh, are you doing any courses at university teaching any courses
2: on this i have not planning
0: to because that would be fantastic i
2: have have not done anything with python i have to admit Uh, and that collection and now for something completely different came out of an entirely different context i'm trying to remember the details now there was a big anniversary coming up for one of the python films maybe it was holy grail okay Uh, and somebody said, you know, somebody ought to put together a project around this because yeah. very little had been done. Academia has tended to be a little bit hands off with comedy in particular, mm-hmm. which is not as weighty and I think as serious as drama. And uh, I, I was game and then my, my co-editor named Kate Egan was also game. So we went in t- together to to do a project on Monty Python, which was just Fantastic fun and a great excuse to watch the series again,,
0: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I have to check that one out next,
3: so within the book, uh, one of the things that you talked about is how to categorize monsters, and even your introductory essay deals a lot with that can you Can we talk about that a little bit because I mean we, as you mentioned, there's many categories, including you you have a really interesting section on cryptids that reminded me I still haven't read. Eberhard's uh, two-volume set that I bought. Like, <laughs> but yeah, could you kind of talk about some of those categories a little bit? I mean, I'm thinking, well, I don't want you to read the essay to me, but I was thinking in terms of, especially things, uh, the way you looked at cryptozoology, you know, monster theory, is, is our monsters, is monsterology an academic discipline? And somebody wrote back, it was like, well, you know, teratology, you know, that's absolutely real. And I mean, that's not really what we're talking about, though. It's its, it's more than that in, in, in sort of I like this idea of... I guess what I really like is I think the only way to truly understand monsters is from a multidisciplinary approach. It takes so many different views to even get a real... If you only study them from, for example, are they real or are they not? Well, that's one perspective. But if you study them as literature, that's a different thing. If you study them psychologically as symbols, that's that's another thing. So there's all these different sort of lenses you can bring to bear on this and i think it's an endlessly full of possibility topic you know so i mean i obviously agree with you Um, i think monsters
2: are incredibly fertile and rich area of the human imagination and they come from so many places and play so many roles in our lives And yeah, absolutely. You can approach them from an anthropological perspective and the kinds of rituals and ceremonies that different cultures perform in relation to monsters. You can approach them from a psychological perspective. Where do they come from? How do they reflect human psychological processes? You can approach them from a teratological perspective or a medical approach, you know, so what kinds of physiological abnormalities have led into myths and folklore about monsters. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: Uh, Yeah, it's such a a dense site of the cultural imaginary that it really repays, I think, a lot of scrutiny. But I agree that an interdisciplinary perspective is what's needed to approach uh, monsters because they extend into so many different areas uh, of human discourse.
0: Yeah, Jeffrey, I'm also interested too, in the teaching aspects of uh, your courses. And I'm wondering how, what your students think of the courses and uh, how they've found your courses and what they've gone on to, to do with uh, the things that they've learned, how you can apply those to other uh, areas of, of study and um, also the workplace or society, what kind of applications there are. I
2: mean, in some ways, the monsters approach is a little bit of a trick. It's rather than present things in a traditional structure or framework, which students might not necessarily find appealing. It's like, hey, let's talk about monsters. (laughs)
1: Uh,
2: And lots of people find monsters appealing where they might not particularly find a course in 19th century American realism, their cup of tea, but... The The trick of it is that it's all about a kind of critical approach to thinking about culture. That is, we scrutinize these various different texts, whether they're literary, whether they're film, whether they're television, whether it's a podcast, whether it's a creepypasta. Uh, you know, I, we, we bring in all different forms that monsters take and, and then uh, try to think through sort of, Okay. Um, what's going on here? Where did these come from? What kinds of anxieties and desires does this particular monster reflect? What does it have to say about us? How is the same monster changed over time to reflect mm-hmm. a different set of anxieties and desires? You know, I I don't give, in my classes at least, a, a kind of exam where they have to regurgitate lecture material Um, or the details of the books that we're reading, because it's not about that. It's not about sort of memorizing these particular works. It's more an attitude and a way of thinking um, that these works are meaningful and they tell us a lot about ourselves. And you can apply the same approach to all kinds of other cultural texts. Like, all right, so what's going on here? What is this? What am I supposed to take away from this? How am I being manipulated to think or feel in a particular way? How does this correspond to something else that I've heard elsewhere so if I can use monsters something that I enjoy and something that a lot of my students enjoy as a springboard to critical thinking about contemporary culture then I feel like it's a win Mm -hmm. and and I hope they encounter something in the class that they wouldn't have read or viewed on their own that they really enjoy and that sticks with them it's something that I hope for every one of my classes you know they come away like man I'm really glad I read that or I'm really glad I watched (laughs) that or you know or even even I don't know how to feel about it, but I can't shake it. I keep thinking about it. But if they can take that approach to thinking about popular culture with them as they move forward, that this stuff isn't necessarily mindless or meaningless, but instead is is full of messages that are being beamed at them about how our culture is, how they're supposed to act, what's good, what's bad, what's good what's evil how it enforces certain expectations about identity politics or not well, you know, like we talk about all of these political issues that are embedded within the texts um, and, you know, and i just want them to become more engaged critical thinkers who act rather than are simply acted upon
0: sounds fantastic and right up our alley
3: but <laughs> it, it, it also i mean you're also talking about you know you know critical thinking about pop culture I that you have a book called Pop Culture for Beginners. Is that the kind of stuff that would be covered in that book?
2: Yeah, it's absolutely the kind of stuff that's covered in that book. All right. Um, (laughs) What I talk about in that book is is what I call the pop culture paradox. Um, And the pop culture paradox is that um, on the one hand, my pop culture pursuits, the things that I enjoy, whether it's Squid Games, which I just finished watching, or whether it's Midnight Mass, or whether it's zombie movies, like, I love these things, and yet I don't think of them as being really important. Like, that's that's the paradox, is, like, these things are incredibly important to me, but also they're not really meaningful in a significant way. Um, and there are lots of people who are, oh, it's just a game, oh, it's just a movie, oh, it's just a series that I enjoy – and what I try to do is to approach the pop culture paradox in the textbook, and we look at ways in which pop culture texts are full of meanings that need, that we decode. We're not even aware of the the strategies that we're going through to decode them because we're, we have these strategies in place. How do we make sense of these different kinds of media? But that they naturalize certain understandings of the world at the same time that they may call into question other aspects of it. So it's about looking at pop culture with a close eye and understanding uh, that we're constantly engaged in a process of interpreting the world and making sense of the, the various different kinds of texts that we come in contact with.
3: And weirdly, somehow all that material is also time sensitive. In time, another generation looks at the same material and sees sometimes wildly different things. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I love that, the depth of it. That's so fascinating.
2: I mean, pop culture has an incredibly short shelf life. Yeah, it does, (laughs) which makes any kind of textbook on pop culture a kind of perilous endeavor. You have to acknowledge right at the start, like, you know, anything I'm talking about in this book by the time it gets to you is going to seem outdated. Um, So I was I was trying to pick a few touchstone texts that maybe will hold up a little bit longer, something like Black Panther, something like Stranger Things, which I can Assume that many, if not all, but many of my students are familiar with, but, you know, five years down the road, it's going to be something else. Yeah. Uh, So so there's a short shelf life. But yeah, the meanings of popular culture texts definitely shift over time. A lot of 80s films now seem very cringeworthy for rape jokes and the way in which right. uh, sex and sexuality are approached you know at the time mm-hmm. it was funny looking at it now you're like oh no <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. yeah couldn't say that today
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. right.
0: yeah. well jeffrey we've really enjoyed talking with you we've got one final question that we'd like to ask all of our guests and that is what's your favorite monster
2: <laughs> um well i already talked about ghosts as being sort of nearest and dearest to my heart so mm-hmm. I'll go in a slightly different direction. I, I think I have to go with uh, Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror.
1: Come up to the lab and see what's on the slab. Really? <laughs> <laughs> it, 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 it did... Yeah,
3: would you care to elaborate? <laughs>
2: There is just no monster anywhere more filled with Joie de Vivre than Tim Curry's uh, cannibalistic (laughs) extraterrestrial transvestite from Transylvania. Um, He's he's sort of every category of monstrosity rolled up into one dynamic sexy ball.
3: (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
0: I don't think we've had that answer before. We we (laughs) have not. (laughs) In 10 years.
2: yeah, but I can't. I can't think of any monster that I enjoy more than Frankenfurter
3: from Rocky Horror. Cool. I haven't had a chance to watch it with my kids yet, and that's. I'm so excited about that. <laughs> it's going to be. I think it's going to be fun. So yeah, we'll see. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your uh, generous use of time here.
0: Yeah, Jeffrey, it was really interesting to talk with you, and um, we'll have to keep in touch. If you're doing. You're always doing something interesting. It seems.
3: It does. So like, yeah.
0: Thank you. Thank you. It's my
2: pleasure. I, I enjoyed it.
3: All right. Have a great evening. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith.
0: And I'm Karen Stolzner.
3: You just heard an interview with Professor Jeffrey Weinstock discussing his new volume of essays on monsters titled Monster Theory. A link to that and many other works by him will be in the show notes. Plus, links about lots of other stuff that we talked about in this episode. It's almost time for our Christmas ghost story, so keep an eye on your feed for that. And be sure to check out our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash monster talk, where we've been covering lots of monster stories and legends and more. And we'll be back for more Monster Talk Live on January 9th, so be sure to hit the subscribe button so you'll be reminded. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And I know I repeat it in every episode, but my gratitude is real. And I'm completely sincere when I say thank you for taking the time to listen to our show.